Welcome back to Everyman Academy. Quickly take your seats as we jump back into the third part of the Moby Dick analysis. In part one, I broke down Ishmael, Queequeg, the basic story, the introduction, how the book starts. In part two, I wanted to get out of the way the major diversions that happen through the book, the whale and its mythology, the many references throughout history. It's a book that almost exists alongside the narrative. A tremendous amount of tension and foreshadowing builds up on this journey as the Pequod and Ahab, its captain, seek to capture Moby Dick, the elusive of white whale. The prophet Elijah, before they left, has some interesting words of mystery regarding Ahab, this elusive captain of the ship who lost his leg to a whale. In Knights and Squires, we are introduced to the other characters in the book, the most important of which is Starbuck. Starbuck, the first mate, is described as a careful man, one as you'll find anywhere in the fishery. For, thought Starbuck, I am here in this critical ocean to kill whales for my living not to be killed by them for theirs, and that hundreds of men have been so killed, Starbuck well knew. What doom was his own father's, wherein the bottomless deeps could he find the torn limbs of his brother? Starbuck is there for a practical purpose, to make his living. He's not there to take risks. He's practical. He's careful. He has a job to do, and he's going to do it with the dangers in mind. Now these three mates, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask, were monumentous men. They it was who, by universal prescription, commanded three of the Pequod's boats as headsmen in that grand order of battle in which Captain Ahab would presently marshal his forces to descend on the whales. It's important to remember as the action unfolds in the coming chapters, the Pequod is a big whaling ship, but these smaller boats must descend from the Pequod in pursuit of the whale. So we also hear we're learning about the harpooners, Tashtigo, an unmixed Indian from Gayhead, Queequeg, who we already have met. They were all islanders in the Pequods, isolates too, each isolato living on a separate continent of their own, yet now federated among one keel. So we learn the islanders, the various cultures represented here, but we still haven't learned about Ahab. We meet him for the first time in chapter 28, called Ahab. There he is, finally emerged, standing on the quarterdeck after the ship has set sail. He's described his whole high, broad form seemed made of solid bronze and shaped in an unalterable mold like Selene's cast Perseus. Threading its way from about his gray hairs and continuing right down the side of his tawny scorched face and neck till disappearing in his clothing, you saw a slender rod-like mark, lividly whitish. Whether that mark was born with him or whether it was the scar left by some desperate wound, no one could certainly say. Ishmael observes Ahab. He's quiet, reflective, stern, regal, hopeful. He's not smiling, but in his eye we see reflection, perhaps the glimmer of a good man. Nevertheless, ere long the warm, warbling persuasiveness of the pleasant holiday weather we came to seemed gradually to charm his mood. So Ahab did, in the end, a little respond to the playful allurings of that girlish air. More than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look, which, in any other man, would have soon flowered out in a smile. Melville brings in multiple forms in the Western canon, including plays, into his masterpiece Moby Dick. Chapter 29, Enter Ahab to him, Stubb. Ere long, the old man would emerge, gripping at the iron banister to help his crippled way. 
So Ahab is pacing about the deck, and Stubb, the odd second mate, came up from below, and with a certain unassured, deprecating humorousness, hinted that if Captain Ahab was pleased to walk the planks, then no one could say nay, but there might be some way of muffling the noise, hinting something indistinctly and hesitatingly about a globe of toe and assertion into it of the ivory heel. Ah, uh, Stubb, thou didst know Ahab then. I am a cannonball, Stubb, said Ahab. But go thy ways, I had forgot. Down, dog, and kennel! Stubb was speechless a moment, then said excitedly, I will not tamely be called a dog, sir. Then be called ten times a donkey, and a mule, and an ass, and be gone, or I'll clear the world of thee. As he said this, Ahab advanced upon him with such overbearing terrors in his aspect that Stubb involuntarily retreated. So right away we see this guy's a loose cannon, and he's not to be messed with. Mr. Tough Guy doesn't take no crap from anyone while suddenly he's backing down. Chapter 30, Pipe. It's a subtle short chapter that gives us a little bit of a psychological look into Ahab, this old man. He is on a mission and he's going to change anything at the drop of a hat. He has a pipe that he's been smoking God knows how long and he just tosses it in the sea. How now? He soliloquied at last, withdrawing the tube. This smoking no longer soothes. Oh, my pipe! What business have I with this pipe, this thing that is meant for sereneness, to send up mild white vapors among the wild white hairs? How easily do people just quit smoking? You can tell Ahab is impulsive and he's going to do anything to get what he wants and get what he seeks. Chapter 36, The Quarterdeck. The drama unfolds. The play continues to be written. Enter Ahab and then all. We're going to get a rousing, stirring speech. And we realize Ahab is more than a cruel, crooked old man. He's actually a wonderful leader. He knows how to rally the troops to his cause, like any good leader. Whosoever of ye raises me a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw, whosoever of ye raises me that white-headed whale with three holes punctured in his starboard fluke, look ye, whoever of ye raises me that same white whale, he shall have this gold ounce, my boys. Huzzah! Huzzah! cried the seaman. It's a white whale, I say, resumed Ahab as he threw down the top maul. A white whale! Skin your eyes for him, men. Look sharp for the white water. If ye see but a bubble, sing out! Captain Ahab, said Tashtigo, that white whale must be the same that some call Moby Dick. Moby Dick! shouted Ahab. Do ye know the white whale then, Tash? Does ye fan a tale little curious, sir, before he goes down? said the gay-header deliberately. And has a curious spout, too, said Dagu. And mighty quick, Captain Ahab. Many good iron in him hide, too, Captain, cried Queequeg disjointedly. Who told ye that? cried Ahab, then pausing. Aye. Starbuck asks, Captain Ahab, I have heard of Moby Dick, but it was not Moby Dick that took off thy leg. Who told thee that? cried Ahab, then pausing. Aye, Starbuck, aye, my hearties all around. It was Moby Dick that dismantled me. Moby Dick that brought me to this dead stump I stand on now. Aye, aye. He shouted with a terrific loud animal sob like that of a heart-stricken moose. Ah, ah. It was the accursed white whale that raised me. Aye, and I'll chase him round the Cape of Good Hope and round the Horn and around Norway Maelstrom. And this is what ye have shipped for men, to chase that white whale on both sides of the land and all over the sides of the earth till he bouts black blood and rolls fin out. What ye say, men? Will ye splice hands on it now? I think ye do look brave. Aye, aye, shouted the harpooners and seamen, running closer to the excited old man. A sharp eye for the white whale, a sharp lance for Moby Dick. God bless ye, men! 
Mr. Starbuck, wilt thou not chase the white whale? Art not game for Moby Dick? I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. Starbuck questions this revenge mission. He is here to make money and has a job to do, not satisfy an old man's vengeance quest. But come closer, Starbuck. Vengeance on a dumb brute. To be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab, seems blasphemous. Starbuck questions Ahab's vengeance mission. He tasks me. He heaps me. I see him in outrageous strength. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. I will wreak that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'll strike the sun if it insulted me. Jealousy presiding over all creation. This hate, this vengeance, this anger, where is it going to lead? To Starbuck's dismay, Ahab successfully rallies the crew to their cause. Chapter 37, Sunset, Ahab all alone. The scene is set. Chapter 38, it's dusk. Chapter 39, the first night watch. It's midnight. The sailors and men of the world to capture and hunt Moby Dick the White Whale. Outcasts from various islands and remote parts of the world, different countries where they never fit. Here they are, bound together in song. The rallying cry of Ahab has captured their imagination and their spirits. The Dutch, the French, the Maltese, Chinese, Tashtigo, Pip, Long Island, Azores, Sicilian, Tahitian, Lascarian, Portuguese, Spanish, all together in song. Ahab's hate inspired the crew, these renegades and castaways taking on his goal. Moby Dick, the whole crew is excited and they're galvanized. The first lowering in chapter 48 is an exciting moment, the big action we've been waiting for. They spot the whales. Oh, she blows, she blows! Where away? On the ice beam, about two miles off, a school of them. Instantly, all was in commotion. The sperm whale blows as a clock ticks, with the same undeviating and reliable uniformity. But at this critical instant, a sudden exclamation was heard that took every eye from the whale. With a start, all glanced at dark Ahab, who was surrounded by five dusky phantoms that seemed fresh formed out of air. These apparitions appear out of the mist. These individuals that we weren't introduced to before, they don't seem like whalemen. Hints that Ahab has been conjuring powers from the other side. The demonic and sinister powers, the black arts, if you will, with one white tooth evilly protruding from its steel-like lips. Already there, Fadala? So this character, Fadala, he is Ahab's mediator between this world and the next. Eastern mysticism from antiquity, the worship and practice of Zoroastrianism. The advent of these outlandish strangers at such critical instant at the lowering of the boats from the deck, this had not unreasonably awakened a sort of superstitious amazement in some of the ship's company. For me, I silently recalled the mysterious shadows I had seen creeping on board the Pequod during the dim Nantucket dawn, as well as the enigmatical hintings of the unaccountable Elijah. Those tiger yellow creatures of his seemed all steel and whalebone, like five trip hammers they rose and fell with regular strokes of strength. As for Fidala, who was seen pulling the harpooner oar, 
had thrown aside his black jacket and displayed his naked chest with the whole part of his body above the gunwale, and at the other end of the boat Ahab, with one arm like a fencer's thrown half backward into the air. It was a sight full of quick wonder and awe, the vast swells of the omnipotent sea, the surging hollow roar they made as they rolled along the eight gunwales, like gigantic bowls in a boundless bowling green, the brief suspended agony of the boat as it would tip for an instant on the knife-like edge of the sharper waves that almost seemed threatening to cut it in two, the sudden profound dip into the watery glens and hollows, the keen spurrings and goadings to gain the top of the opposite hill, all these with the cries of the headsmen and harpooners and the shuddering gasps of the oarsmen, with the wondrous sight of the ivory Pequod bearing down upon her boats with outstretched sails, like a wild hen after her screaming brood, all this was thrilling. So they end up killing the whale and we see that butchering and feasting upon the blubber, the dismantling and process the whale to get the blubber, the spermaceti, all of that an important part of the narrative. The quest for the white whale has even the most careful men plunging full force into the task without caution or fear shows us Ahab's power. He has whipped these men into a frenzy. Catching the whale's flask and stub, they're both so happy. Oh, he's a wonderful man, they say. Now, in chapter 54, there's an interesting thing, a deviation story told in an inn, and we get the full Don Quixote Cervantes vibes here. This is pulled straight out of that playbook. The story within a story, the theme being that of mutiny. You go on to a boat, Captain, crew, men, strange places, you're gone. Barbarism, it's more animalistic. You don't have as many of society's checks and balances. Mutiny was common on these ships, and we see that throughout Moby Dick. While I won't go into the story that Ishmael tells, it is of note that he is telling the story in the future, looking back on the events. So we suddenly see Ishmael's fate in the events of Moby Dick. We know he survives and lives to tell the tale. Oh, how the foreshadowing goes. We can feel Moby Dick silently stalking the ship. At midnight, one psh, poof of the whale's spout is heard. The crew can't react because then it's gone. Moby Dick is clearly stalking the ship. We as the reader feel the moodiness, the suspense, this foreshadowing. We know that Moby Dick is smart. And we see a squid in chapter 59. We learn when you see a squid, you are likely to see a whale as well. Right when you think that it's all going to come to a head, we get more deviations and movements through the plot. They give color and paint for us a picture of myth, grandeur, scale, liveliness. We are enveloped by the myth of the whale and of that of human civilization, history, our natural world, reality itself, big philosophical ideas. The first boat we see, the Jorobum. It's another story of mutiny, a little side tale. Moving right along, the Pequod meets the Virgin. We hear about the Dutch and the Germans, their contribution to the whaling tradition. Kind of an uneventful story, but it adds to the mythos of the whale, how long their lifespan is to realize how ancient these old whales are. Chapter 91, Pequod meets the Rosebud. What happens here? Boat full of Frenchmen. Herman Melville kind of pokes fun at the Frenchies. Not so good at whaling. They don't even know that this stuff, Amburgis, is in a whale. So... We learn more about that substance in the coming chapters. Just another added detail on all the uses and ways you can take whale parts and make perfume and other things. Lotions, creams, herbal remedies, food, oil, knowledge, light. Chapter 93, this character, a southern black slave, Pip, 
he's poked fun at in a way, and it's hard to tell if Herman Melville is feeling bad for this character or if he's just plain racist. Either way, Pip is a sad, sympathetic character that ends up getting cast overboard in certain chapters that are involving him from Ahab's perspective seem strange. It's hard to follow, and Ahab appears to be descending into madness, but becomes fixated on Pip for whatever reason. I had trouble keeping up with this part of the book. Pip is cast overboard. Did he remain out there? Did he come back? How much was real and how much was in Ahab's imagination? There's an interesting chapter 99, The Double Loon, which goes way deep into astrology. Ahab is a master of navigating the stars and this double loon is something that he can refer to in order to navigate the waters. And we hear about all the different 12 astrological signs and symbols. Look you, double loon, your zodiac here is the life of man in one round chapter. And now I'll read it off straight out of the book. Come, almanac. This astrology, it is known by pagans as well as witches, as we learn. One in Copenhagen. And Queequeg himself has various tattoos that are astrological in nature. Chapter 100, the Pequot of Nantucket meets the Samuel Enderby of London. But an interesting thing happens. We meet this English captain. He has encountered Moby Dick and he lost his arm. He meets Ahab and Ahab lost his leg. We see these two, they're mirror images. They both encountered the white whale. However, the Englishman says, hey, I'm not going to deal with this. There's no reason to get upset. Life is full of wonders and I can still enjoy life. I don't need to go on some crazy revenge mission. Ahab is not pleased. He's an angry man. He's got vengeance and anger. And we, the reader, look and say, wow. The same thing can happen to two different people and how one person copes, learns to deal with it, lives a good life, chalks it all up to a lesson learned, dusts himself off, and off he goes. Whereas Ahab, ooh, he's been spited, he's been wronged, he's angry, and he will have his revenge now, even if he takes down the whole Pequod with him. Another interesting chapter, A Bower in the Arsacides. It's this chapter about a whale skeleton that Ishmael encounters after the events of Moby Dick and we see he's all tatted up like Queequeg. Interesting. We get to know the carpenter of the ship and he makes Ahab a new leg. Ahab is reborn. He's on his revenge mission and he's ready to take the whole Pequod with him and the turning point happens. Ahab and Starbuck and the captain. Starbuck realizes Ahab is ready to abandon this entire mission, all their pay, what they're there for, to work and make money and go back to happy old Nantucket. Ahab doesn't care about any of that, and he's willing to dash all of those goals and dreams in order to take down the elusive white whale Moby Dick. Ahab and Starbuck have a little standoff, but mastering his emotions, Starbuck, he calmly rose, and as he quitted the cabin, paused for an instant and said, Beware of thyself, old man. Ooh, throwing down here. What's that he said? Ahab, beware of Ahab. There's something there. Thou art but too good a fellow, Starbuck, he said lowly to the mate, then raising his voice to the crew. Close, reef the topsails, fore and aft, back the main yard, up burtons, and break out the main old. Any false pretenses have been abandoned, and as the Pequod approaches, hones in on the Pacific, the spot where Ahab seems to have cornered Moby Dick too, or is Moby Dick stalking them? We don't know. This quiet game of cat and mouse happening in between the stories and diversions of the main plot, the myth and the legacy of the whale and whaling, humanity, theology, antiquity, it's all here, and it's all going to continue in the climax. Where will it lead? The last... 100 to 150 pages, well, 
they get epic. And I am gonna close it out here for now. Let's just take a quick recess. When we return, we are going to get to the end and we're gonna see how it all turns out. The epic climax, poetic, biblical, the grand spectacle, the apocalyptic themes, supernatural elements all come full force. Like a tidal wave, a typhoon, the Leviathan. Pull up your main mast. Don't get shipwrecked. Have yourself a little break. I hope you're not seasick because the climax of this book is not for the faint of heart. For now, class is in recess.